Acts chapter 3 this morning. Acts chapter 3, we began looking at this chapter and came all the way through verse 16. I want to read verse 17 down through verse 26. We look at the word of God today. Peter, remember, is the speaker. The reason he is speaking to a crowd that has gathered is that he, in Jesus' name, has brought healing to a man who had never walked. It's in a very public place. And that attention that has been drawn to Peter has given him an opportunity to preach the gospel, which he is doing. He has already mentioned Jesus. He's already drawn attention to the crucifixion, to the resurrection, and also to the power of Jesus' name to bring this man to full health. Verse 17, he says, And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive into the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announce these days. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first... God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to our hearts. As we get to these sermons in the book of Acts, we're kind of slowing down a little bit to see the truth that is being proclaimed in what I would say is a very dense section of theology. Peter, in his preaching here, mentions numerous titles of Christ, and it's a good thing to zero in on those and think about those because we learn more about our Savior. We learn better how to worship our Savior when we understand who He is. We learn how to better obey Him. You can see that Peter, in his preaching, is kind of put on the spot. It was as he went up to the temple, the hour of prayer, he wasn't planning on preaching, but these thoughts that God had him speak on this day were certainly thoughts that are worthy of our attention. They 
were recorded for us by Luke as he wrote the, the, the book of Acts. And of course, this is a major event. This is, as you remember, one of those times when God worked in a miraculous and amazing way, and the people responded with the kind of reaction that miracles are described as. They're wondering. They're amazed. Miracles are called wonders. And Peter, as he proclaims the gospel, gives us also a wonderful message. I've reviewed just a little bit, but don't miss that this is a part of a broader section here that's focused on this event that took place with the healing of this man. The man was lame from his mother's womb. A very public scene. This is at the temple. This man had sat at the beautiful gate, which was a gate that many passed through into the temple. Everyone knew who he was, and when he was healed, they recognized who he was, and eventually he made his way into the temple and is hanging on to Peter and John. The healing that he received was instantaneous. He was leaping, jumping, walking about. Nothing halfway about this healing that God had done in this man's life. And it's all in Jesus' name. So the attention is drawn to Jesus and the power of Jesus. Peter argues that. He deflects any glory that might come to him or John. And he draws attention, especially in verse 16, that it's on the basis of faith in Jesus' name that this man has been strengthened. But Peter, in the context of talking about the healing of this man, has mentioned the crucifixion. He's mentioned the resurrection. And in verses 17 down through verse 26, he's talking about what God is doing, what God has done, and what he's doing in the life of his people. Notice Peter says in verse 17, and now brethren. He's talking to the Jewish nation. He's not talking to his Christian brethren, he's talking to his Jewish brethren, the Jews, the nation of Israel, which was responsible for what happened to Jesus. And if I could just kind of summarize verses 17 and 18 and put it in second person, at least as he is addressing them, he's basically saying that your rejection of Christ though due to ignorance, fulfilled God's plan concerning the sufferings of the Messiah. I'll say that again. Your rejection of Christ, though due to ignorance, fulfilled God's plan concerning the sufferings of the Messiah. Notice Peter draws attention to not just the actions of the crowd, but the leadership, as he says in verse 17, Now, brethren, I know that you, pointing to all of them listening, Act in, in ignorance just as your rulers did also. And of course, it was the crowd who called crucify. It was the leaders who were stirring them up to cry that out. Both of them are responsible for their actions. And it is interesting, isn't it, when you look at Scripture, that there are times where people are doing things in their ignorance. They have no idea, but they're actually fulfilling God's word. The men who are gambling for the garments of Christ, the fact that they pierced him, that they didn't 
break any of his bones. They were not cognizant of what Scripture had taught. They're just acting. But as they act or don't act, they're fulfilling what God said was going to take place. And this, this act of crucifying Christ, of rejecting and repudiating Christ, as we see Peter describing that in the previous verses, was something they did in ignorance, that is, ignorance of who he was, who he is. Ignorance of the significance of who Jesus truly is. This is an ignorance that is testified to both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Of course, Peter's saying it here. But Jesus, in his preaching and his teaching, his interaction with the Jews, would mention their ignorance. When, for instance, he said to the Jews in John 8, I am he who testifies about myself. The Father who sent me testifies about me. So they were saying to him, where is your father? Jesus answered, you neither know me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. They were ignorant of the one true God in spite of the fact they were claiming to know God. Jesus said later to Philip, even one of his disciples, he said, if you'd known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. How could that be? Because they saw Jesus. Jesus is in the Father. The Father is in Jesus. They're not the same person, but there's a union there. This is God, the triune God. But even his disciples at times were ignorant. But Jesus, as he talked to his disciples and prepared his disciples, he was preparing his disciples even for persecution because they did not know God. They did not know him. John 15, 21 Jesus describing some persecution, he says, but all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. Perhaps one of the most familiar statements to us regarding their ignorance is Jesus' own words on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. As you look through the book of Acts, you can see even when Paul starts preaching, that he spoke of their ignorance, even as they read the utterances of the prophets, Acts chapter 13, verse 27, for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. And Paul himself, by his own confession, was ignorant. He said he thought he ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus. And it was in his ignorance that he's persecuting there at Jerusalem, and then going to Damascus, and then coming to the knowledge of who Jesus is on the road to Damascus, and now he knows, recognizes his responsibility before God. And let's not miss that, that there is responsibility even when there's ignorance. Ignorance does not remove Guilt, it may make us think a little bit differently about the nature of the sin. Certainly a sin, what Scripture calls a sin that is flagrant or with full knowledge is a sin of the high hand. It's a sin of rebellion in the face of full knowledge. But sin is still sin. Guilt is still guilt. Consequence is still consequence. 
these people who crucified Christ in their ignorance, their rulers who conspired together in their ignorance were still guilty. And Peter certainly is going to call them to repentance. But it's an amazing thing, as I said, that in their ignorance, they did something which God in his plan was accomplishing his will through their ignorance. He had announced before that the Messiah would suffer. That's what he says in verse 18. But the things which God announced beforehand, he foretold, notice the wording here, by the mouth, singular, of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer. He is thus fulfilled. What Peter is pointing to in his statement there is that God, of course, foretold the sufferings of Christ through the voice, you could say, or the mouth, you could say, a message that came through the prophets. And you might say, well, how could that be that all of the prophets testified to this? Well, you have to stop and think, based on the teaching of Scripture, what points to the sufferings of Christ. And you can look at specific statements that point to the suffering of Christ. Or you could look at the great big picture of the law and all that the law presented that was to be moving pictures of what Christ was going to come to do. The whole sacrificial system of which Moses wrote, which God, of course, revealed was in one sense a part of that message that the Christ was going to suffer, the Messiah was going to suffer. Now, they may not have known or understood, but with the book of Hebrews and other passages of scriptures, we can, as the light is shown back on the Old Testament, and we see how those feasts of Israel or how those sacrifices or however, whatever God had prophesied, the Passover uh, had prophesied, of the coming of Christ, not only of the coming of Christ, but what he was coming to do and what would be accomplished in his coming. God tells ahead of time because of his plan. He wants us to know from the word of God what his plan is. He also wants people to know that he's God and he's the only one who can do this. He's the only one who knows the end from the beginning because he's planned it all. And Isaiah 44, he challenges other gods, false gods, of course. But he says, who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order from the time I established the ancient nation and let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. He issues a challenge to these false gods, knowing full well that they are nothing in the first place. But it's one way in which he establishes his identity as God. He has a plan. He has announced it. He's working it out. There are many, many passages in the Old Testament that detail even the working of his plan. Just consider the things that happen at the cross. Consider the things that happen in fulfillment of Scripture in the Gospels. Why does he tell ahead of time to give the knowledge that he is God? Jesus, even in his life, in his earthly life, said, 
with regard to specific fulfillment of prophecies he was making of himself. He said to his disciples, from now on, I'm telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am or that I am he. It was to engender or build faith. And of course, this matter of the sufferings of Christ was something that God foretold. It's something that if you look at just the sermon here, or even the previous one, you're starting to ask, well, where is it in the Word of God that these things about the sufferings of Christ are told? Well, obviously, you have to see the feasts of Israel, the sacrifices from that vantage point. You have to recognize that that's part of what God was doing as he outlined those things for his people. But there's certainly other things as well. There's specific statements about Christ. Turn over, if you would, for a moment to Luke chapter 24. Luke 24, Christ has laid down his life. He has risen again. Luke 24, he's walking with some disciples. They do not know that it's him. He eventually reveals himself to them and then disappears. These are the disciples on the road to Emmaus. It's a wonderful story. As soon as he vanishes from their sight, verse 31, verse 32, it says, They said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? What was he talking about? Well, if you go back, what he was talking about was his own sufferings. Before they knew who he was, Jesus is encountering these two on the road, and he's talking to them, and their hearts are burning. What is he talking about? Look back up at verse 25. It says, he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Verse 27, then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And what is that doing in their hearts? Well, they later said their hearts were burning. What is going on in their hearts? They're realizing this actually, what has come to pass is actually in fulfillment of the scriptures. You know what they did at that point after Jesus vanished? They talk to one another, but they also talk to the rest of the disciples. Verse 33, it says they got up that very hour, which they'd already said it was late in the day. So they're making this late journey back to Jerusalem and found gathered together the 11 and those who were with them saying, the Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. They began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of bread. You might have a marginal note next to the words, their experiences. Because it wasn't just their experience. It was what they were hearing. What were they hearing? Notice again, I'll read it with a different reading. It says, they began to relate the things on the road. What were the things on the road? Jesus was talking about how it was necessary for him to suffer. They're coming to an understanding that everything that had taken place with Jesus was actually planned by God 
and now has been fulfilled. And then Jesus appears. In this passage, verse 36, while they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, peace be to you. He proves that he's in the flesh. He told them to touch him. He ate something before them. But verse 44, it says, now he said to them, these are my words, which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Now, that really sets the stage, doesn't it, for what's happening in the first chapters of Acts? Because Peter's preaching repentance. He's preaching the forgiveness of sins. He's explaining the fact that the Messiah was to suffer. The picture that you might get upon a reading of the Old Testament without knowing what those sacrifices were about or what the feasts were about or what some of the psalms were about is you get this picture of a king who's coming and he's going to reign over everyone and everything but before that glory had to come suffering that was in the plan of god that was the part that many overlooked they were taking what they wanted to hear perhaps, or perhaps they just really, as Peter said, there's ignorance. They didn't understand what the scriptures were saying. Even the disciples didn't understand until Jesus opened their minds to understand. So Jesus here is explaining. Peter, you could say in Acts chapter 3 and other places Paul does as well, they're drawing attention to the fact that the Messiah had to suffer. Did they draw attention to the sacrificial system? I think likely so. Did they draw attention to specific sacrifices? Well, Paul later said, Christ is our Passover, sacrificed for us. What about the Psalms? Was it Psalm 22? Well, they recorded in the Gospels what Jesus said when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, that made it into a Gospel. And for us, it's in big, bold letters to help us to see it's connected with Psalm 22, written a, a thousand years before. That that cry coming from the psalmist was mirrored by the Messiah as he prayed, as he cried out with this feeling of abandonment as he's suffering on the cross for sin. Why else would the Messiah cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the king anointed by God. This is the prophet anointed by God. This is the priest anointed by God. His ministry will have complete success because God is with him. But in that, and we would say certainly he was directed by the Spirit and did what he did even on the cross through the Spirit, but it's in those moments that he cries out. As God had forsaken him, read through Psalm 22, you can see the mockery that he experienced recorded in the Gospels. You can see the sneering of those who passed by him and told him to call out to God as if he was accepted by God. You can see 
the psalmist depicting the surrounding of the enemies like the bulls of Bashan, these enemies who are surrounding him, wanting to destroy him and gore him. That certainly is the picture as he's there on the cross. But that psalm also talks about the piercing of his hands and his feet. That psalm also talks about gambling for his garments. So the psalmists are portraying a picture of a suffering Messiah, Psalm 69. He's hated without a cause. He's suffering insults. There's merciless abuse and the mockery of his enemies. I'm just giving you some illustrations from two of the Psalms. We certainly could look through the Psalms and see other references to his suffering. But the Messiah had to suffer. Those words of God had to be fulfilled. And it's like Peter is taking a flashlight and he's shining back in the Old Testament and he's saying that was talking not only about the kingdom, but the suffering. Now, you could go to Isaiah 53 as well. Would you turn over there for a moment? Isaiah 53. Talk about ignorance. Talk about suffering. In the same text that talks about the griefs that he bore, the sorrows that he carried. The being pierced, verse 5, and being crushed and chastened and scourged, verse 5. Oppressed, verse 7, afflicted like a lamb, like a sheep. He didn't open up his mouth. There's so many things in Isaiah 53 that point directly to the sufferings of Christ. But look at the first part of the chapter. How did they understand him? Who has believed our message, verse 1, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of the parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. I, in thinking about this chapter, I was helped when someone said, this is a future confession of the nation of Israel, of their failure to see who Jesus was. It's a future confession of the nation of Israel, their failure to see who Jesus truly was. They were ignorant. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. They didn't esteem the suffering servant for who he really was. They did not think of him as their Messiah. How could he be from, how could he be from Nazareth and be anybody even important, much less the Messiah? But he is the Messiah. And he had to suffer. And in your ignorance, you participated in his sufferings by perpetrating the act along with your rulers. That's what Peter's saying. Turn, if you would, back to Acts chapter 3. So God has done something amazing in that he's fulfilled his 
prophecies concerning the suffering of Christ through an ignorant people, an ignorant people who now, in light of what they have done, even in their ignorance, must, must repent. They must repent. It's therefore, in verse 19, in light of the truth about Jesus, in light of your ignorance, but your actions in your ignorance, therefore, in light of the truth that he is truly the Messiah, that suffering was a part of God's plan for him, therefore, verse 19, repent and return. Now, one of the things that I think we can see just at the beginning of this verse is that God is giving these people mercifully the opportunity to repent. Mercifully, he is calling them to repentance. Mercifully, he is offering to them forgiveness of sins and seasons of refreshing and a full restoration as a nation. And this group of people can be a part of that if they repent. Why do I say those other things beyond forgiveness? Because as Peter continues, he notes that there are blessings that will accompany their full and true forgiveness. Look at verse 19. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away, number one, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That's number two. Verse 20, and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you. That's number three. Now, there's more to be said about the coming of Christ, the return of Christ, that Peter talks about in verse 21. We'll come to that. But what Peter is promising here, based upon the plan of God, the, 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 the repentance of these people, if they turn from their sins, is yes, God will wipe away your sins. And he will send seasons of refreshing. And he'll send Christ again to bring a restoration, a restoration that he had foretold and was the picture of their glorious future as they thought about the Messiah. That that was not missed. God just hadn't done that yet. What had to happen before that glory was the suffering. Let's just take a moment, consider what Peter is calling them to. When he says in verse 19, therefore repent and return. Repent and return. Repent of what? Well, they need to repent of having, as Peter said, disowned Jesus. They'd rejected him. Now they need to own him. As their Lord and King, as the one sent by God, they need to believe his claims that he really is the Son of God, the Son of Man. They've repudiated him, rejected him, asked for a murder to be granted to them instead of him. Now they must repent and confess him as Lord and God. They must turn from their sinful unbelief and their rejection of Jesus and now confess him as Lord and Messiah. Change your mind about Jesus. Jesus is who he said he was. 
not only has he risen, but God still has a plan. Jesus very much is a part of that plan. Jesus is at the center of that plan. But you must repent. And not only repent, but return. This is not only something that happens in the mind and the heart, but it it will be shown in the life. When Peter calls them here to repent and return, this is to return to the one true God. One writer said the word translated repent has a deep spiritual significance. It is an exhortation when it's an exhortation to repent, not merely to sorrow for sin, but rather to a complete change of mind in thought, feeling, and purpose. It is the act by which the soul, under the regenerating influence of the Holy Spirit, renounces self and trusts in Christ, dies to sin and to the law, and rises to new life in God. The word return shows us that not merely were they to change their thinking, but they were to come back. Remember, the prodigal didn't just stop doing what he was doing. He went back to his father. There needs to be a reconciliation between this people and the one true God who sent his son. Instead of rejecting him and crucifying him and continuing in that rejection, they now need to recognize the truth about him and repent and become rightly related, yes, even to Jesus Christ, who is now in heaven, but is very much alive. And what will that great and glorious king, what will that servant, suffering servant do for those who come to him in true repentance? He will pardon them. He will forgive them. He will wipe that slate clean. And that's the blessing that Peter is talking about as he says in verse 19, so that your sins may be wiped away. This is another image in Scripture of the pardon of God. There are many such images if we read through the pages of Scripture and see his forgiveness. He washes our sins that are like scarlet, so they'll be as white as snow, Isaiah 1. He causes them to disappear like a morning mist or a morning cloud, Isaiah 44, 22. Micah 7 says he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea as if sins could be taken and tossed, and sink, never to be found again. Psalm 103 says, He has removed our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. But there's also this picture, wiping your sins away. Revelation 7 and 21 speak of God wiping away tears. This verb was used to describe the wiping away of ink from a surface that had not yet absorbed it, like papyrus. And so as the ink was put on the paper, before it actually soaked in, it could be wiped and there'd be no evidence of that ink because it never had soaked in and become part of that parchment. 
And that's the picture. Obliteration. Complete removal. Now just think of the enormity of what they'd done. They had crucified God's son, the Messiah, who had come to earth. They were responsible, yes, in their ignorance, but that's what they were responsible for. And Peter is saying, repent and return, that your sin, your sins, plural, may be wiped away. Complete cleansing. Complete pardon. Now, you could stop really the message right there and just think about the fact that that's what God is offering to this group of people. Do you think he'll forgive you for what you've done? God is a God who is full of compassion. He is ready to pardon. But you must come to him in repentance. Proverbs 28, 13, he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes, there's repentance. What will a person who confesses and forsakes his transgressions find? Compassion. Compassion. The loving heart of God responding to a miserable sinner. He, he is moved. That word compassion has the idea of someone who's inwardly moved. And we're talking about God. He's not like any other person. But the scriptures teach that he is a compassionate God who reacts or responds in compassion when someone comes to him repentant and looking for mercy. Praise the Lord for the forgiveness of God. Praise the Lord for the forgiveness of God for anyone in this scene who were actually the perpetrators. They were, they were not that we wouldn't have been, we weren't there, but that, that God would forgive these who were there, who were crying out, crucify him, who were moved by the rulers to cry that out and actually saw the crucifixion of the Son of God. God is willing to forgive them. And don't think Christ isn't either, because Christ asked the Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. That promise was good for them. We're going to see how they responded in the next chapter. Many believed. But that promise is not only good for them, it's good for you. If you turn from your sins and turn to God, in his mercy and grace, he will pardon you through Christ. There really isn't anyone who comes to God with true repentance who God refuses to forgive. And if you've been forgiven for your sins, you have reason to rejoice today. You have reason to give thanks. You have reason to sing. He's been good to you. You might look at all the other troubles in your life and say, I've got... Lots of issues and things going on, but are you forgiven? Is your home in heaven? Are you going to see God face to face one day because he has washed you and wiped the slate clean? That's joy for today. It's really cause for joy for every day in your life. You might not be able to rejoice in that today because you don't know that, but I want to call you to believe in Jesus Christ. In Jesus as the Christ who died on the cross for sins so that you might have forgiveness if you put your faith in him. 
If you do that today, you could find pardon, mercy, forgiveness. It's a blessing to know that your sins have been forgiven, that you've been washed. And there's not any of us who come to God any other way. We're all blood-washed sinners, those who've come to faith in Christ. Peter links, in addition to that promise of forgiveness, he also links their repentance with something that he says is in the middle of verse 19, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Yes, he promises repentant, excuse me, he promises forgiveness, but he also promises times of refreshing. Remember, he's talking to the nation. He's talking to a large group of people that have gathered. And you might wonder, what is he talking about here? And some, some actually take this statement, times of refreshing, and they connect it with, verse 21, the period of restoration of all things. In other words, seeing that the times of refreshing are linked to the coming of Christ and that period of restoration of all things. Well, before we really answer that question, let's just back up for a moment and say, what, is, what are the times of refreshing? What is that referring to? Is there any scripture that would point us to what that means? If we just look at the basic word meaning, that word refreshing means relief or rest. It can refer to a cooling off or a respite or even a breathing space. The Greek translation of the Old Testament uses this one time, and it's in Exodus, where it says, when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not listen to them. That would be Moses and Aaron, as the Lord had said. What was the relief from? It was the plague of frogs. The frogs had come. I believe it's that one where Moses asked Pharaoh, when do you want them gone? And Pharaoh says, tomorrow. Didn't make a whole lot of sense. Why not today? But he wants them gone, and Moses says, okay. And then the frogs die. They gather them in heaps together, and there's relief. There's rest. There's refreshment from not having a frog in your dishes, your kitchen, your everywhere in your house. So is it a, in other words, that's a, that's a plague that would be wrath from God. Is that, is that refreshment a release from or a relief from his wrath? The word that's translated times is a word that can refer to either a point of time or a period of time. Second Timothy chapter three, verse one refers to difficult times that are coming or second Corinthians chapter six, verse two talks about an acceptable time of salvation. It's also the word in Acts 14, verse 17, when Paul talks about the goodness of God in that he gives rains from heaven and fruitful seasons. Seasons. So yes, times, but also the word there is seasons. So it's a period of time in which fruit 
is being given by God because rains have come and it's producing fruit from the land. It's not just a single day. And in the context here, it is plural. Times of refreshing, seasons of refreshing. Okay, so he's called them to repent and return to God. Their sins are being forgiven. And then he says, in order that times of refreshing may come. And where is this coming from? It's coming from the presence of the Lord. God himself is sending this season of refreshing, or seasons, plural, and they're blessing his people. So the question is, is he talking about what someone called the present consolations of the gospel, or is this something yet future? Is this some future blessing? Because there are blessings that come with knowing that your sins are forgiven. There's relief and refreshment from knowing that I have been forgiven for my sins. That I'm reconciled to God, that I belong to him as his child. That my hope is in heaven, that I'm secure in his love. All of those are refreshing. One writer drew attention to the fact that Peter is calling for repentance so that they can have their sins of forgiven. But in the previous chapter, as he does that same thing, he makes reference to the Spirit. If you turn back to chapter 2 for a moment, look at verse 38. Verse 37, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to the brethren, or Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Remember, it's not baptism that saves. That's the outward symbol or picture that a person has come to Christ. But then he says, for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay, when the Holy Spirit comes into someone's life, is there refreshment? Is there change? Is there relief? So you can see that is a reasonable suggestion that the times of refreshing could be talking about the spirit coming and not only refreshing an individual, but a whole group of people. So that there would be in all of these people, a belief in Christ, the presence of the spirit, a whole season of refreshing because God's salvation has come in and changed them and really has changed the landscape because of his salvation. Now. I say that, and I do think there's an argument, if you turn back to chapter 3, that some make for the times of refreshing being connected with that period of restoration, verse 21. In other words, that God is going to bring a restoration of the nation and if you just read through the Old Testament and look at the promises of the coming kingdom and what it's going to be like, I mean, talk about relief and rest and refreshment. The question is, is this one and the same, or is God going to do this prior to eventually doing that in the future? And I honestly, as I studied this this week, I'm back and forth. I'm back and forth the whole time. I'm, I'm thinking, 
man, it, it, it just kind of looks like it could be one in the same. And I, you know, prepare my notes in one way thinking, yeah, that's it. And then I go back and I think, yeah, but he said this, and I'm trying to think of this scripture and compare the two. And I, I appreciated when I finally came to someone who said, well, it's difficult, so don't be dogmatic. <laughs> and that author went on to say this, which I thought was insightful. He said, the times of refreshing that come as a result of repentance and faith are harbingers or something that anticipates the time of complete restoration. I'll read it again. The times of refreshing that come as a result of repentance and faith are harbingers of the time of complete restoration. Whereas the seasons of refreshing are periodic and subjective, the time of restoration is permanent and objective. In other words, when restoration comes, there's not going to be a change after that. It's truly restoration. But there could be a season of refreshing where God, by his grace, works. And as he works and people repent and there's a change, there's not just in one life, but many lives. People, even during those times in church history, have started to mistake what was taking place for what God was going to do in the restoration. In other words, Christ's kingdom. And what happens when God is saving many, many people in a community in the Great Awakening? And it seems like everybody you talk to, God has done a work in their life, and they believe in God. They're trusting in God. They're worshiping God. There's new life, and it seems like it's everywhere. And I think what that author, whose name is Hendrickson, was, was pointing to is that God sometimes in history has done that, where he's brought a time of refreshing when people have repented and turned. But that actually anticipates something greater, which is, we believe, the coming of Christ after having poured out his wrath upon the earth and then establishing his kingdom on earth and a full restoration and a fulfilling of all of his promises. I just trying to compare what Peter is saying here, even to the context of Acts. When the gospel is coming into a community or into a place, into a city, and there's a major response on the part of that city or that place, and there's joy because of what God has done, that seems to me consistent with what Peter's saying here. The gospel came to Samaria, and there was a great work of God. The gospel came to Ephesus. The gospel came to Corinth. Jesus said to Paul, I have many people in this city. So God was bringing, by his grace, people to repentance and a time of refreshing, but eventually... What happened to Corinth? Eventually, what happened to Ephesus? Eventually, what happened to Jerusalem? These places that looked like there was a refreshing, eventually there came to the point where they're either destroyed or there's now just unbelief. It wasn't permanent. It wasn't a restoration. It certainly wasn't like the whole earth was filled with the knowledge of the Lord, like the waters cover the sea. Just reading through the history of Paul in his conversion, repentance. He comes to Christ. He went to Damascus to persecute, but that's where he, Ananias, finds him. He starts preaching Christ there, and without going into the, all the chronology, there's a change that takes place in his life, and he goes down to Jerusalem. And because he's now preaching Christ, what 
he used to be preaching against, there's a stir and people are trying to take Paul's life, but eventually Paul is sent back to Tarsus. And then the scriptures describe what was taking place in Judea and Galilee and Samaria. It says, so the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed peace being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit continued to increase. That to me sounds like a time of refreshing. Didn't continue, but it was a time of refreshing when people believed. So I I believe what Peter's talking about here is the effects of repentance when people turn to Christ. It could be experienced individually, but I think as he's addressing all of Jerusalem or many people in Jerusalem here, he's talking about what could take place in Jerusalem prior to that full restoration, a time of refreshing. So can you expect times of refreshing or seasons of refreshing And I think the answer to that is what Peter's talking about really does happen. It has happened in church history. I think you could say the Reformation was a period of great refreshing. But that has not widened and continued, although we would say we still value the principles and the things that were taught and learned in that time. That's not spreading over the earth as it as it now as it was then. It was a season. And I think we have to be careful not to identify something as a season of refreshing if it's not centered on what Peter is preaching about here. Understand what I'm saying. Peter is talking about the gospel. He's talking about repentance He's talking about turning from sin and a right understanding of who Jesus is. Can you say that a season of refreshing could exist apart from that? Is the Asbury revival that's going on, as it's so called, a season of refreshing? If you haven't heard about what's taking place, they're in over a week now of what they're saying or worship times, praying and singing. These students who are participating in this, I don't know what their classes are, if they're supposed to be going to class, but it's just been kind of this ongoing experience of what they're calling worship, prayer, singing. But I would ask the question of anything like that, what is happening there with regard to genuine repentance, truth about Jesus Christ, What is the gospel that is being preached there? Jonathan Edwards had to deal with, even during the Second Great Awakening, things that were taking place that people were claiming were revival, but he didn't agree that it necessarily was because it wasn't producing the kinds of effects that scripture points to when there is a genuine revival, a genuine change. And he argued that there can be lots of activity and excitement and enthusiasm, but it does not, it doesn't say that it isn't revival, but it also doesn't say that it is. If you compare with what the scriptures actually said, and he laid down in his 
writings on the subject of revival, uh, distinguishing marks of the work of, a spirit, of the Spirit of God, he said that when there is truly God working, what is it going to center in on? And I'll just read to you some, just five points. He said, number one, when the work is such as to raise the esteem of professed converts for Jesus and seems to establish their minds in the truth of the gospel testimony to him as the son of God and the savior of men. So it centers in on who Jesus is and right belief about him. Secondly, he says, when the spirit that is at work operates against the interests of Satan's kingdom, which lies in encouraging and establishing sin. In other words, is there genuine repentance taking place? Or are people just kind of whipped up into an emotional frenzy? And I think sometimes that is what's going on. It's not about a true work of the Spirit of God. It's not about Jesus Christ. It's not about turning from sin. It's about people gaining some kind of value from a whipped up frenzy of emotion. And it's the feelings of euphoria that come from that, but not from God. Thirdly, he said, when this spirit operates to bring about a greater regard to the scriptures and establishes them more in their truth and divine origin. In other words, what does it do with the Bible? Is it, is it more of the Bible? And is it lives that when this is taking place are becoming more like Jesus Christ? Or is the Bible sort of a, yeah, we use that, but that's not really important. Let's sing our next song. Number four, he said, when that spirit operates as a spirit of truth, leading persons to the truth and convincing them of those things that are true. And lastly, he says, when that spirit operates as a spirit of love to God and man. In other words, what is that producing? And you have to, if, if you ask about the Asbury revival, I just have to say, we'll see. I think from the things I've already heard and seen about it, it does not have those marks. Uh, this is something that's spreading from this college campus to other college campuses, one place to another. Sort of this religious frenzy. Is it focused on Christ? Is it establishing a focus on his word? Are lives being changed? Is holiness the product? Or is it just a bunch of enthusiasm? Now, do we need to be enthusiastic about Christ? Yes. Yes. L read the Psalms and see the, the delight and the affections of the psalmist. Something else Jonathan Edwards talked about. You look at the joy of the psalmist and the delight of the psalmist in God, and they're shouting to God, crying out to God. There's a lot of emotion there, but it's not worked up. Repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from, and here's the sovereign over anything like that. The sovereign over anything that would truly be a time of refreshing is the Lord. It comes from him. That's why when someone advertises a revival, how do they know that God is going to bring revival? 
I mean, put a revival on the church sign. That doesn't mean God is going to show up and the time refreshing is going to come. He's the one who brings those things about. He brings it about through the working of his spirit, through the preaching of his word. And even when his spirit is at work and the word is being preached, it's not always bringing that kind of public commotion. So we have to be careful even to discern what really is a work of God. But it is a wonderful thing, isn't it? When God has brought times of refreshing, he has brought changes in people's lives. And he could do that, again, I believe individually. But when he does it corporately, Listen, there are about, there's about 5,000 people about to be saved here. Read through the next chapter. There's about 5,000 people who are going to respond to Peter's message. I call that a time of refreshing. Looking forward to reading and spending time in together. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins. In Jesus' name. And we thank you, Lord, for the times of refreshing that you send by your grace when there is a people who respond in repentance and faith. Thank you, Lord, that you also grant the repentance. Thank you, Lord, that you're doing it here so that we can see it in the book of Acts and know what it looks like. We ask, Lord, for your grace in each of our lives that we would respond to the truth today. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.